Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's 6am on the 2nd of April, 1912. On the River Lagon in Belfast Island, Australian Albert Nichols is at the peak of his maritime career. The 47-year-old cuts a commanding figure with his solid build, neat moustache, blue navy cap and a blue jacket with six company buttons and an anchor on the left sleeve. Albert's trousers are perfectly pressed and his black leather shoes are polished to a parade gloss. If you didn't recognise Albert as a white star line bosun by his splendidly turned out uniform, you might by his bosun's pipe. This long brass whistle's high pitched sounds can cut through the noise of a big steamer on the windswept ocean and are immediately understood as specific orders by the 30 or so able seamen under his command. While the bosun's birth name is Albert, he's called Alfred by family, friends and his crew. But he's further known as Bertie, Mick, and by the affectionate nickname Big Nick, which refers to his stout build. By any name, Albert inspires confidence. He has to, because as this ship's bosun, he's in charge of deck operations. At this moment, Albert and his men are all busy, ensuring that the four tugboats 75 feet below the main deck smoothly help this grandest of new ships into the open water of Belfast Lock. With excited crowds on shore watching, the tugs guide the liner until it's about two miles off the coast in the Irish Sea. Then they let her go. The big ship's huge boilers are fired up one after the other. Her triple propellers turn for the first time. 
A flag signifying that sea trials are to commence is hoisted and the ship gives three long blasts from its siren. Albert Nichols is part of a crew that's making history. The biggest and most luxurious ocean liner ever built, the White Star Line's Titanic, is moving under her own steam for the very first time. For the rest of the day, Titanic's speed, manoeuvrability, stopping distance and other capabilities will come under scrutiny. The trial's successful, early that evening back in Belfast, Titanic is approved as seaworthy. But there's no rest for Albert, or for the rest of the skeleton crew of 41 officers and seamen, and the further 78 stokers, trimmers and greasers, all under the command of Captain E.J. Smith. That's because at 8pm, Titanic is steaming again through the Irish Sea, this time bound for Southampton, from where she will, in just over a week, make her maiden voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to New York City. Out on the deck, the black sky above, the salt air in his lungs, his men going about their deck work, Albert Nichols is in his element. All his life, he's been surrounded by boats and the sea. Now he's a man with much responsibility aboard Titanic, the greatest ship ever built. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. This is part one of the two-part episode, Australia's Titanic Hero. The sinking of Titanic has been recounted in thousands of books and commemorated in everything from musicals, exhibitions and model kits to Lego sets, video games and even recipe books. The most popular recreations, though, have been the dozen or more movies about the epic tragedy. The first of these films, Saved from the Titanic, was released just 29 days after the ship sank on the 15th of April 1912. And it starred actress Dorothy Gibson as herself because she'd actually survived the disaster. Sadly, that film is lost. But just about everyone has seen James Cameron's mighty 1997 blockbuster Titanic, which won 11 Oscars and even 20 years after release remains the second biggest grossing movie of all time. We all know the fictional story of Jack and Rose. Maybe you've even debated whether she could have made room for him on that damn door. Yet barely anyone knows the story of Australia's real-life Titanic hero, Bozen Albert Nichols, and about the mystery that swirls around him to this day. To understand how Albert Nichols came to be on the Titanic, we need to understand where he came from. One of Australia's most beautiful, most remote and least visited places, Lord Howe Island. 780 kilometres northeast of Sydney and 600 kilometres directly east of Port Macquarie, crescent-shaped Lord Howe Island is a 7 million year old volcanic peak that rises out of the South Pacific's Tasman Sea. It's a place of towering mountains that stand half a mile straight up from the ocean, yet it's just 10 kilometres long and about 2 kilometres across at its widest point. Its subtropical forest and jungle teem with birds and insects that are found nowhere else on Earth. Lord Howe Island is ringed by pristine beaches whose clear emerald waters and coral reefs are home to an abundance of fish and sea turtles. The night sky glitters with so many stars it's possible to see yourself by their distant light. While Lord Howe Island is officially part of Australia, it's also very far apart from the mainland. You'll see giant stick insects, until recently thought extinct, flightless woodhens that are related to New Zealand's birds, 
and the soaring red-tailed tropic bird, also known as the bosun bird. What you won't see are kangaroos, koalas, wombats, emus or any of the other animals for which Australia is famous. Nor will you see a snake, for the island has none and its spiders aren't deadly as they can be on the mainland. Lord Howe Island is often, and with great justification, spoken of as an idyllic paradise that's among the world's most beautiful places. Lord Howe Island was discovered in mid-February 1788, just three weeks after the settlement that would become Sydney started at Port Jackson. Unlike mainland Australia, the island was uninhabited, and for nearly half a century, it would remain unsettled. Sometimes visited by colonial ships, Lord Howe Island was used chiefly as a place to stock up on sea turtles whose meat helped prevent scurvy. Any men going ashore could also easily help themselves to the island's birds, who, free from predators since time began, showed no fear of humans. Within 50 years, two species were eaten into extinction. From the 1820s, Lord Howe Island would have a new class of visiting mariner, whalers from as far away as London, San Francisco and Nantucket, whose three or four year voyages brought them to southern waters in search of sperm and southern right whales. In 1834, the first settlers arrived on Lord Howe Island to take advantage of this opportunity, a trio of Englishmen from New Zealand and their Maori wives. This small group was employed to set up a supply station for whaling ships. They farmed the land and bred pigs and goats from feral stocks that whalers had released. Seven years later, in September 1842, retired British officer Captain Owen Poole bought out these original settlers and ramped up the whaling supply operation. Among his first employees were Thomas and Margaret Andrews, who signed on as servants for one year. Thomas had been a mate on the ship James Patterson, which in 1832 brought Irish immigrant Margaret to Sydney. They fell in love and married in 1836. Thomas and Margaret worked for a time as floating lighthouse keepers in Sydney Harbour and then tried to get their own maritime freight business going. But that failed, and in 1842, one of Thomas's old shipmates introduced the couple to Captain Poole, who offered them 12 months' work as servants on Lord Howe Island. Once their contract was over, Thomas and Margaret returned to Sydney with their savings and bought 400 acres of land to try their hand at farming. Falling victim to an economic slump, they had to sell up, getting just £10 for their land, on which now stands North Sydney Railway Station. Thomas and Mary went back to Lord Howe Island in 1844 to work again for Captain Poole. That same year, Captain Poole sold half his share of the business to a Dr John Foolis, who came to live on the island. Finishing their second contract as servants, Thomas and Margaret Andrews decided to stay on Lord Howe Island. They lived in a house made from palm thatch and went into partnership with other workers to farm about 44 acres of land. On New Year's Eve 1846, Thomas and Margaret had their first and only child, a daughter named Mary. In 1847 to 1848, when Captain Poole and Dr Foolis failed to secure leaseholds from the New South Wales government, they decided to return to the mainland, most of their employees going with them. By consent, the Andrews family took possession of their holdings and property. That included Captain Poole's homestead, The Pines, 
which they bought from him for two tonnes of potatoes. 180 years later, the Pines is still in the family, but it is now known as the award-winning tourist destination, Pine Trees Lodge. In 1849, Lord Howe Island was home to just 11 people. But they were an industrious bunch. Finding red onions washed up on a beach in 1848, Margaret Andrews cultivated them and created a valuable export industry. Other crops included pumpkin, carrots, maize, watermelon grapes and even coffee. Living in a cashless society, the Lord Howe Islanders bartered their produce for goods brought by whalers. One import that Lord Howe Island managed to avoid was convicts. The New South Wales government did consider establishing a penal colony, but nothing ever came of it, sparing Lord Howe Island a brutal history like that of Norfolk Island. During the 1850s, whaling increased and the island was visited more frequently by ships. Lord Howe Island was remote, but the population was growing gradually as other families settled and it was proving to be a viable community. Thomas Andrews died in 1860, but the family soon had a new patriarch. This was Captain Thomas Nichols, commander of the whaling ship Aladdin out of Hobart. Captain Nichols arrived on Lord Howe Island in July 1862 and was quite taken by Thomas and Margaret Andrews' only daughter, Mary, who was now a few months shy of 16. After a month-long courtship, Thomas and Mary were married. Captain Thomas and Mary lived at the Pines with her mother, though Captain Nichols spent much of his time at sea hunting whales. He'd returned from these long voyages long enough to do his husbandly duty, and on the 16th of July 1864, the couple welcomed their first son, Albert William Stanley Nichols. Captain Nichols and Mary would go on to have eight more surviving children, establishing themselves as a pioneering family dynasty. Though Lord Howe Island is spectacular, the handful of families who lived there had to work hard, producing everything they consumed or traded. For young Albert Nichols in the early 1870s, growing up on Lord Howe Island must have been a combination of heaven and hell. He could climb the ancient banyan trees, explore the hills and mountains where the island's giant stick insects could be caught as bait for fishing. The salmon, in particular, provided good sport, pulling and struggling like roped calves. At George's Bay, he could imagine finding the treasure, 5,000 gold sovereigns that had been buried there by shipwrecked sailors in 1830, and that remains undiscovered to this day. In the clear waters of the lagoon, Albert could swim with fearless fish and sea turtles, while similarly tame mutton birds and woodhens were found all over the island. The islanders also liked to go pig hunting and enjoyed playing cricket and card games. But what they really loved was to get together for a night of singing and dancing, with most members of the community known for belting out their favourite ballads. Albert's favourites aren't recorded, but his uncle William loved the American Civil War song, Kingdom Coming. George, Albert's younger brother, liked to sing The Red, White and Blue and Little Brown Jug. Though there was plenty of fun to be had as a child on Lord Howe Island, Albert would also have experienced plenty of drudgery. With his father at sea for months on end and his grandfather dying before he was born, Albert had many daily chores around the house and farm. He would also have had to look after his younger brothers and sisters. 
In between doing this work and taking whatever lessons in reading and writing his mother gave him, for Lord Howe Island had no school, young Albert surely dreamed of the adventures to be had in the far-off whaling grounds his father worked, and of exploring the world that lay beyond the endless horizon encircling his island home. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Whaling went into decline in the late 1860s and far fewer ships visited Lord Howe Island in the early 1870s until barely any came at all. That left Lord Howe Island's residents reliant on the regular trading vessel that took their major export, red onions, back to the mainland. But a destructive fungus destroyed that crop in 1878, giving the trading boat no reason to continue making the trip. After that, Lord Howe Islanders were cut off from the rest of the world for months at a time, and agriculture declined because there was no one to trade with. As a remote, self-sufficient community, Lord Howe Islanders, though under the control of New South Wales, were self-governing. This arrangement was tested when retired naval officer Captain Richard Armstrong was appointed to the island in 1878, and the following year was made its resident magistrate. As part of the deal, he got a handsome £300 annual salary and a 100-acre leasehold of prime island land for just five shillings rent per year. Captain Armstrong brought with him to Lord Howe Island some worthy changes, including introducing more efficient farming methods, building the first road and hiring the first schoolmaster. But Lord Howe Islanders had been running their own affairs for more than 30 years and it's no surprise some of them resented his presence. Captain Thomas Nichols, particularly, was aggrieved that Captain Armstrong shut down the still he used to make fiery rotgut liquor. Adding insult to injury, the New South Wales government now only vaguely confirmed the Lord Howe Islanders' own leases. Between them, they were allowed just 32 acres for cultivation, just one-third of the land area that Captain Armstrong had. In December 1881, Captain Armstrong negotiated the first sale of the island's now-famous Kentia Palm. Lord Howe Islanders thought the deal was all in his favour and they petitioned the New South Wales government to recall him for this and other serious transgressions. But the petition was ignored until a month later in Sydney when two separate government officials accused Captain Armstrong of financial misconduct. Then the petition was re-examined and an inquiry was held on Lord Howe Island. Nine islanders testified against Captain Armstrong, though they weren't put under oath, nor was he allowed to cross-examine these hostile witnesses. Under these circumstances, the most serious charges against Captain Armstrong, that he'd failed to prosecute one of his workers who sexually assaulted a child, that he'd monopolised island trade, that he'd illegally sold liquor to islanders, were found likely true during the inquiry. Captain Armstrong vehemently protested his innocence. In a secret memo that became public, 
he also savagely criticised every islander who'd signed the petition. And he was particularly vicious in his denunciations of Captain Thomas and Mary Nichols. Thomas, he said, was a lazy, troublesome man who claimed the island as his birthright, who denied government authority, who was a drunk, and who deliberately wrecked a ship in Noumea. Mary, meanwhile, was a very vindictive woman who hated authority and who had been carrying on behind her husband's back with another whaling captain. Further, while Captain Armstrong said the Nichols children were of fine character, he said they were also the most backward on the island because their parents had kept them away from the school he'd established. That there was truth on both sides was best illustrated by Captain Armstrong branding Thomas Nichols a drunk, while also admitting he had extended him credit so he could buy dozens of bottles of wine and spirits for so-called medicinal purposes. This justification seemed hardly believable, but Captain Armstrong had the most unlikely witness to back him up, Albert Nichols. Albert's defence of Captain Armstrong set him on a collision course with his parents and with an iceberg almost exactly 30 years later. On the 12th of April, 1882, Albert wrote a letter supporting Captain Armstrong. In it, he professed to have no quarrel or disagreement with his parents. But, he wrote, Hearing of certain accusations made by them, I consider you have been most grossly maligned. And I now wish, out of justice to you, to make this statement, that on every occasion I have been sent by my parents to you for wine or spirits, that they have told me to ask for it medicinally, on account of illness in the family, more especially by my father. Albert also accused his parents of not repaying money they had loaned from Captain Armstrong. I may state, he wrote, that I have never known you to act in any way but most gentlemanly and honourably towards all of us on the island, and you have at all times given us the very best of advice and counsel, especially to young people, while your manner has been kind and considerate to all. I regret to say that I am perfectly ashamed of the conduct of my parents of late towards you. Albert continued, accusing his parents of conspiracy. In my presence, they have on many occasions stated that they will do their utmost to have you removed off the island. He then added, I feel sure, indeed I know, that they have influenced the feeling of others against you in every way to your detriment. Then Albert delivered a final kick in the guts to his parents. P.S. I have frequently known my father to distill spirits from bananas in large quantities. Comparing the language of this letter to a later one written in Albert's own hand is to see that he was, at the very least, given help to write these eloquent words. Despite Albert's letter, in May 1882, the inquiry ruled against Captain Armstrong, whose removal from the island was confirmed and whose public service was terminated. Captain Thomas and Mary Nichols had won, but they wouldn't forget, let alone forgive, their son's betrayal. Back in Sydney, Captain Armstrong continued to protest that he'd been unfairly treated and he published pamphlets restating his case. One such pamphlet included evidence that Thomas Nichols had forged the signatures of numerous illiterate Lord Howe Islanders on the original petition. But the most incendiary damnation was another letter from Albert Nichols describing how his mother Mary's terrible desire for vengeance had finally gotten the better of her. 
On the 7th of July, he was at work in one of the island's gardens when she came up and tore his spade from his hands. Mary then threw it at his back so forcefully that he suffered an ongoing injury. Back at home, Albert said, his mother threatened to shoot him and was exhibiting signs of quite maniacal violence. This, he claimed, was now a regular occurrence. Albert brought a complaint against his mother to a special constable who'd been appointed to the island in the wake of the inquiry. No action was taken, and so Albert hatched a plan to escape before he was killed. In her 2006 book, Lord Howe Island Rising, Albert's grandniece, Daphne Nichols, recorded that his planned departure, shrouded in secrecy, was known only to his youngest brother, George, who was the only sibling he was able to farewell. Nichols' family law has it that Albert built a bonfire on a beach so he could set it ablaze as soon as he saw a passing ship. On the 7th of August, 1882, he spied the steamship Suva and ignited his bonfire to attract its attention. Telling his brother George not to go home until he was safely aboard, Albert then either swam or rowed out to the steamship. Aboard the Suva, he saw Lord Howe Island, the only home he'd ever known, recede into the distance. After he arrived in Sydney, Albert got work on a ferry, learning Marlin Spike seamanship, whose skill set includes everything to do with rope, towing and docking. He also went to night school. Yet the battle with his parents raged on. His mother Mary travelled to Sydney to try to legally force Albert, who wouldn't be of age until he was 21, to return home with her. But as Albert was 18, gainfully employed and getting an education, the authorities rebuffed her. Had they sent Albert home, he might well have been killed by his parents. Captain Armstrong continued to try to clear his name in 1883. Albert testified under oath before a select committee of the New South Wales Parliament. There, he said, most islanders had actually favoured Captain Armstrong, who had been the victim of a conspiracy. Other testimony firmly cast Captain Thomas Nichols as the leader of that conspiracy. Further, in a letter to the Daily Telegraph at the end of December 1883, Albert castigated his father publicly. He wrote that his father had not paid his alcohol and food debts to Captain Armstrong, who, he said, was a kind and caring individual whose presence on Lord Howe Island had put an end to the frequent starvation-related illnesses that he and his siblings had suffered. Eventually, two select committees exonerated Captain Armstrong of all charges, though it was years before he was compensated for the wrong done to him. And Thomas and Mary Nichols were never held to account for all the trouble they'd caused. Sometime in the mid-1880s, Albert Nichols worked his way to England as a seaman, getting the words faith, hope and charity tattooed on his chest. He joined the White Star Line around 1888 and in 1893 he married a 23-year-old Scottish lass named Jane Porter. They lived in Seaforth and Bootle in Liverpool, where the White Star Line had its headquarters. Albert and Jane's first child, Grace, was born in 1897. Their son, Thomas, came along two years later, and in 1903 they had another daughter that they named Jean. Despite the circumstances that made him leave Lord Howe Island, Albert still thought of his birthplace fondly. He told his own children colourful stories about his childhood swimming with unafraid fish and hand-feeding birds. 
His youngest daughter, Jean, growing up near English docks and amid industrialisation, came to think of these as fairy tales, and she would until decades later when she visited Lord Howe Island as an elderly woman and saw the extraordinary fauna with her own eyes. By 1907, Albert and his family lived in Southampton, where the White Star Lines Express Terminal was established that same year. Albert now worked as bosun on the Adriatic, the White Star Line's new luxury ship. The boy who'd grown up half a world away on remote Lord Howe Island was now sailing regularly from Southampton to Cherbourg in France and then to the incredible sights of New York City. But Albert hadn't forgotten his home and family. In April 1909, he wrote a letter to his uncle William and aunt Hannah describing life on the Adriatic. This ship is such a monster that it takes me all my time to keep her in order. Just think, a ship 725 feet long and carrying 25,000 tonnes, it takes me very near the watch to go all around her. I do not know what you people would think if you were to see a ship like this out in Australia. But Albert was more excited by two even bigger ships that his company was building. We've got two new ones, his letter continued. The largest in the world. They had to carry 40,000 tonnes and be 800 feet long, and their names are Titanic and Olympic. I suppose that I shall be transferred to one of them when they are ready, so I can say that I am the bosun of the largest ship in the world. Albert's letter inquired after his uncle and auntie's health and asked that they remember him fondly to all his friends. With his father long dead and his mother now in her 70s and perhaps less likely to throw a shovel at him, Albert also hoped to come back to Lord Howe Island. I should like to see you all again and don't be surprised to see a big fat man heave in sight one of these days. Albert was right in his letter. He was transferred to the Olympic, then the biggest liner the world had seen, when the ship made her maiden voyage in June 1911. Albert, as bosun, earned a salary of £8.10 shillings a month, equivalent to about £930 today. He again served under Captain E.J. Smith, who'd been in command of the Adriatic. That meant Albert was witness to two accidents the Olympic had that illustrated just how hard these huge ships could be to control. In June 1911, when in New York Harbour during her first transatlantic voyage, Olympic's huge displacement sucked a tugboat under the ship, severely damaging the smaller vessel. Just three months later, Olympic collided with a naval cruiser, puncturing her hull in two places. Both times, Captain E.J. Smith wasn't found at fault. But repairs to Olympic in Belfast delayed work on the Titanic's completion and maiden voyage by three weeks. Now, however, Titanic was almost ready. On the 4th of April 1912 at 12am, Titanic arrived in Southampton with Albert Nichols and his team of men guiding the five tugs that swung her into berth 44. Titanic was gigantic. The length of six city blocks, the ship stood as tall as an 11-storey building. On the 5th of April, which was Good Friday, the Titanic was dressed with colourful bunting and flags to provide the public with a pleasing spectacle. Some locals were able to go aboard to have tea and inspect the ship. Among them were Albert's wife and three children, and they were given commemorative china, which remains in the family to this day. After Good Friday, Southampton bustled with activity as the big ship was provisioned and loaded with coal. Huge crowds assembled at the White Star Line's hiring halls 
hoping to sign on to work on the ship they called the Biggin. Of the 897 crew members, 246 had previously worked on the Olympic, meaning Albert, from Captain E.J. Smith and First Officer William Murdoch on down, would see many familiar faces on the maiden voyage. While Second Officer Charles Lightoller hadn't been on the Olympic, there's a good chance he and Albert would have struck up a conversation about Australia. Lightoller had spent much time there and even married an Australian girl. And in 1900, he'd sent Sydney into a momentary panic with a sensational prank. Lightoller, along with two mates, rode out to Fort Denison in the dead of night to fire its ancient cannon and raise an imitation Boer flag to scare the city into thinking it was being invaded. Also aboard the Titanic was Thomas Andrews, the ship's chief designer, who had also designed the Olympic. Thomas Andrews would be on hand during the voyage to observe Titanic in operation and help solve any problems that arose. Albert knew him well, accompanying this amiable perfectionist on his daily inspection of the ship. No doubt Albert was tickled that Titanic's father bore the same name as his own grandfather. As Albert lived in Southampton, over Easter he could sleep in his own bed and spend time with Jane and the children. But on the night of the 9th of April, Albert supervised deck operations and then slept in his quarters, as did other officers and petty officers, bar the captain. At eight the next morning, the crew muster began, with Albert's men examined by doctors to ensure their seaworthiness. Albert was also involved in the successful test of two lifeboats overseen by a captain from the Board of Trade. The lifeboats were lowered into the water and tested in a variety of ways before being given the captain's approval. At 12 noon, on the 10th of April, 1912, Titanic cast off from Southampton on her maiden voyage. But the journey almost came to an end as soon as it started. Passing berth 38, Titanic's massive displacement and momentum caused a far smaller vessel called the New York to break free of its six mooring ropes. In seconds, this boat was being sucked straight towards the hull of the Titanic. Quick thinking by the harbour pilot, tugboat captain and Titanic's captain EJ Smith averted disaster by pushing and pulling the New York away. But the New York came within four feet of smashing into Titanic's hull, an accident that might have sent her back to Belfast for repairs. Albert's heart had to have skipped a beat. This was the third near disaster he'd experienced in similar circumstances under the command of Captain EJ Smith. As it was, Titanic was delayed an hour before sailing across the English Channel to lay off the French port of Cherbourg where some passengers departed and many more boarded. From there, Titanic sailed north to the Irish port of Queenstown, where she took on more people, many of them third-class passengers, bound for new lives in New York. There were now approximately 2,224 people on board. At 1.30pm, Albert Nichols' men raised the anchor and Titanic set sail on her first and last transatlantic voyage. The rest of Albert Nichols' story can be heard in part two of this episode. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you liked what you heard, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and review at iTunes. If you'd like to know more about any of these stories and see photos of the people, places and events you're hearing about, head over to ForgottenAustralia.com. 
There you'll also find links to Forgotten Australia's Facebook page and to my new book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. This podcast was written and produced by me on Lord Howe Island. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.